Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Brandon Fogel, Harper Schmidt Fellow and Collegiate Assistant Professor in the Division of the Humanities at the University of Chicago, and he's here to talk with us about mechanism and causation. Brandon Fogel, welcome. Hello, Matt. And Mark. So you've been especially interested in the idea of action at a distance in the history of physics. So maybe you could tell us what that is. So um, historically, the term action at a distance has been used to refer to the way that certain kinds of forces have been understood to transmit their effects. So specifically gravity and the electric force and magnetic force. But more more generally, it, it has to do with the idea that something that happens in one place can cause an effect in another place without anything traveling from one to the other. And so it's an action that, uh, that affects something in one place, but that began at a distance. So, yeah, the idea would be that something can happen on this side of the room and affect something on the other side of the room without coming into contact with anything in between this side of the room and that side of the room, or something roughly to that effect? Yeah, that's right. So without anything uh, passing from one to the other. A better way to understand the concept is to think about how you perceive actions happening in the world around you. So when you see things happen, you often come up with a way of explaining them that involves things that we would call mechanisms. So objects banging into one another and transmitting their motions through direct contact. And you you almost never use uh, kinds of explanations that don't involve that. And so uh, think about what happens, for example, when you see a magic trick. Uh, I have a magic trick that I like to do that uh, involves... Uh, a playing card uh, that I just put in my hand, and uh, I lay a match on top of it, and I'm able to make the match appear to levitate, uh, to actually rise off the card about about half an inch or so, and then it falls back down, and I can do that on command. And uh, you can ask yourself, what sorts of explanations could I give for how I'm able to match? So you can ask yourself, so what sort of explanations you can give for how I'm able to make the match levitate? And uh, some of those are going to be better than others. One option, one possibility, is that I actually have the power of levitation. I can make things levitate with my mind. And uh, you can stop there, maybe, and maybe that suffices as an explanation. Uh, So I could ask you guys, actually. Does that, do you find that a satisfactory explanation? I mean, I guess I love it as an explanation because I love magic tricks, but I suppose part of what I love about it is that it can't be true, right? It seems to me like it can't be true. There's gonna have to be some other explanation And maybe I don't want to know if I'm just enjoying a magic show, but somewhere deep down, I assume there's another explanation. It's not going to have to do with the powers of your mind. It's going to have to do with something, like you said, in contact with the magic. So cool. So what, I mean, what's really unsatisfying about Brandon can levitate things? I mean, honestly, why is that unsatisfying? Well, I mean, one reason you might find it unsatisfying is that it's difficult to generalize. It seems like it's tailored to the particular moment right now it doesn't really furnish us with explanations of any other phenomena beyond this particular instance of your levitating a matchstick. It doesn't make further predictions about how things work. Okay. Well, is that just another way of saying that you're not, um, you don't seem to see levitation phenomena happening a lot? Right, right. Okay. So if I started making other things move around me, you would then start to believe that I had the power of levitation? I mean, I guess it seems hard to say, but at a certain point... I suppose we'd have to if you could make chairs levitate, if we could bring something to you that you'd never seen before and you made that levitate. At a certain point, it would be kind of disturbing and I would really wonder what was going on, but 
it would begin to get a lot more plausible to me that, yeah, really you could make things levitate. Okay, that's interesting. You'd be kind of disturbed and you'd continue to be disturbed. So suppose somebody came in and was able to explain my powers of levitation this way, that outside of the room or in the walls of the room, I had previously placed a bunch of magnets and that everything that I made levitate was actually had magnets in it. And through some sort of you know, computerized control, I was able to make the magnets in the walls make the thing in my hand or the thing across the room uh, move up in the air. And I got lucky that you happened to pick objects that uh, were also magnetic in nature. That would alleviate the disturbance that you were feeling. Is that right? Right, I think so. Then I'd feel like, okay, that's how he did it. That's pretty cool that he did it that way. But exactly the disturbance that I felt, I wouldn't have anymore. I would think that, okay, now I have my explanation. Okay, good. So here, now, now let's say somebody else came along and forget that there might be magnets in the wall. So let's say you, you thought of that yourself and you actually opened the wall and you found no magnets. And so that's not a good explanation. Let's say that the person came along and said, I have a theory about levitation and it involves uh, people having the power to send out levitator particles out of their brain that when they uh, travel to an object and make contact with it are able to make the object move up in the air. How would that affect the disturbance that you felt? I mean, so I guess now that it sounds kind of fishy to me, right? The idea, I, you know, I guess I want to know more about levitated particles. On the other hand, I mean, it does sound like an explanation. Maybe I want to say it sounds like the right kind of explanation. You know, I've heard similar explanations before. Now that you mentioned particles, I feel a little bit more comfortable. I'm still not sure what kind of particles these are supposed to be. So... Yeah, sure. That has some effect. Okay, good. And, and let's say that this guy who has the theory of levitator particles also has a detector, uh, or, or somebody else uses this theory to create some sort of detector. Uh, and we can put that between my head and the object that I'm making levitate, and it can actually seem to measure the transmission of some sort of particles. And the particles carry energy, and actually I can uh, use these particles to do work. We can all use these particles to do work. So maybe you, you then get a colony of people who can levitate, and so you put them to work uh, you know, producing electricity for the rest of the world, um, and that's a brand-new power source. If all of that happened, you would start to be much more comfortable with what was going on. You would then accept levitation as just a feature of the natural world, or, or sorry, the ability to emit levitator particles as just a kind of thing that some humans can do. Okay, so now... Take that away and go back to the idea that I could just make levitation happen without the transmission of anything. So there's no experiments that you can do to detect the transmission of anything from my head to that match. It just happens. I'm just able to make it happen. That sort of thing is like what uh, people called action at a distance starting some 400 years ago. And the discomfort that you felt when we've talked about that as a possibility was just like the kind of discomfort that people like uh, Leibniz felt in response to Newton's theory of gravity. That discomfort itself, I should say, um, has its roots in the theories of the world put forth by uh, the ancients, Democritus and even Aristotle. And it goes back to a problem that preceded Democritus as well, put forth by a guy named Parmenides. But that discomfort is uh, with precisely the idea that the communication of action shouldn't be able to just jump across space. That if you allow communication of action to just jump across space, you lose some kind of control over the possibility of anything happening. So if I can make something levitate without transmitting anything, 
then what limits are there on what can happen anywhere in the universe? Who's to say that the actions that we're seeing right now, which seem to be relatively ordinary, who's to say that these aren't caused by actions that are happening on the other side of the universe? So that's the sort of worry that goes back all the way to the ancients and continues up through the ages into the 20th century. And People like Einstein were deeply concerned about the effect that that would have on physics if we allowed things like action at a distance into physics. So you mentioned magnets earlier on, and I mean, isn't magnetism an example of action at a distance? You mentioned some of the pre-Socratic philosophers, and this is one of the things that really fascinated Thales, for example. There's evidence to suggest that Thales thought that magnets were alive because they could make each other move without coming into contact. Is that right? Do magnets have to be an example of action at a distance? Uh, No, they don't, actually. Uh, The uh, role of magnetism in the history of science is pretty fascinating in and of itself. It does go back to the ancients who saw parallels with animistic phenomena. And so it's the sort of thing that led uh, someone like Aristotle to want to say that the same kinds of things that motivate animated behavior also motivate inanimate behavior. So the idea that there was a kind of unity between the two. And that shows up in his explanation of gravity, it's worth saying. So fast forward to the 17th century and the scientific revolution. There, the... uh, the phenomena of magnetism caused real problems, and it was not clear at all how to begin to account for the different phenomena of magnetism. One of the things that happens in the 17th century, though, is uh, you get the development of what's called the mechanistic philosophy. It's also called the corpuscularian philosophy. And people like Boyle, Robert Boyle, Galileo before him, and even Descartes gets thrown into this conversation in a way, develop the idea that all explanations should be given in terms of just matter in motion. So any good explanation of any kind involves just bits of matter moving through space. Now, Descartes didn't think that, uh, he thought that all matter was continuously filling space and that it actually was nothing different from space. That's a separate story. So what people like Boyle tried to do was to try to explain the phenomena of magnetism by postulating that magnets were emitting little tiny particles and that these were traveling into the intervening space and somehow making contact with the objects that they were moving, I mean, just like the levitator particles that we were talking about before. And the nice thing about magnets is that there is a certain amount of regularity to it. But uh, what happens as... Uh, and, and these didn't get very far, it's worth saying, those kinds of explanations. It's not until the 19th century and the developments of very precise mathematical laws, describing magnetic behavior in particular, that uh, you start to get the possibility of a, of a more detailed account of what might be causing magnetism at the microscopic scale. And there you had people postulating uh, things they called ethers, which had little kinds of crazy structures to them. I mean, in the 19th century, there was this huge fad among physicists of coming up with models of the ether to transmit things like magnetic force, electric force, gravity, and, and also light as well. And something very significant happens in the course of the, the 19th century, having to do primarily with the work of Faraday and Maxwell. And the the upshot there is that you get the introduction of the notion of a field, a magnetic or electric or ultimately an electromagnetic field. A field is something that fills all of space and that is able to transmit effects continuously through space and time from one part of space to another part of space. And so what looked like to some people action at a distance before that, after Maxwell, looks like something that's transmitted continuously in space and time, but at the cost of the introduction of this new kind of ontological entity, the field. And then there's a lot of questions about what what a field is and how we're supposed to understand it that carry on into the 20th century. And and some of those questions are still with us today, I should say. 
the notion of action at a distance is something that up until about the 1680s, up until Newton introduced his theory of gravity, most people, most natural philosophers, as they were called back then, thought had no place in science, no place in, in good explanations. Like I was saying, people like Boyle, who developed the mechanistic philosophy. When Newton introduces his theory of gravity, things really change. There is a large reaction, especially among people on the continent, against Newtonian gravity because it seems magical. And it's precisely because it allows actions at a distance. And the Brits, the, the English, I should say, do partly to a sort of nationalistic pride and a desire to one-up the, uh, the Continentals. You know, there was a lot of nationalistic rivalry at the time. Very quickly got behind Newton and his work. And they developed some interesting philosophical justifications for his use of action at a distance. And the power of Newton's system was so great that people began to forget about the complaints against action at a distance that had been lodged by people like Leibniz. And by the beginning of the 19th century, you have action at a distance being a well-accepted part of scientific explanation. And what Faraday and Maxwell represent is actually a kind of old guard conservative reaction that becomes uh, a, a reaction against the idea of action at a distance. And the field concept for them is great precisely because it gets rid of action at a distance. So uh, just to clarify, Newton's innovative idea was that every object is attracted to every other object by a force of gravity. That's what his theory of gravity was, that every bit of matter everywhere in the universe is attracted to every other bit of matter everywhere in the universe um, with uh, a force of a particular form. And then he also had his laws of motion, which enabled this idea of the force to be implemented in a specific and rigorous way. It was the first description of the motion of the planets that seemed to derive those motions as characterized by Kepler's laws by that time. It was the first derivation of those motions from a very general framework, from a framework that did not appear to assume what it was trying to demonstrate. And it also unified the motions of the planets with the motions of things on the Earth. So it unified the celestial and the terrestrial realms in a way that had an enormous generality to it. And so the mathematical precision was, I mean, you can't understate the importance of that and the impression that it made on people. It's that mathematical precision and the generality of the framework that makes the form of his gravity, which included this action at a distance, it made people willing to swallow that. And then they got used to the idea, and they forgot about the, uh, the earlier reservations they had with it until Faraday and Maxwell came along. And, and Faraday and Maxwell, uh, they get rid of action at a distance in electric and magnetic phenomena. And Maxwell explicitly recognizes that he's got nothing to say about gravity because the properties that gravity has don't seem to allow the same kind of reformulation that the electric and magnetic phenomena do. And it's not until Einstein comes along that you get what appears to be an explanation of gravity that doesn't involve action at a distance. And uh, scientists at the time were, thought that was a really, really great thing. So you have this curious movement in the acceptance of action at a distance over time. Up until Newton, people thought action at a distance was magical and absurd and shouldn't be part of any good explanation. After Newton, people thought action at a distance was just fine. It's mysterious, but okay. Lots of things are mysterious. 
And then uh, in the, the early middle of the 19th century, you get people, Faraday and Maxwell, coming along and saying, no, this really is absurd, um, and we should root this out of all of the parts of physics that it's gotten itself into. Uh, and then Maxwell succeeds, apparently, in doing so. And then Einstein, apparently, succeeds in doing so for gravity. And there are lots of details that are important to pay attention to about, about those claims, that they, whether they have eliminated action at a distance and what they've had to give up to do it. Uh, and then what happens in the 20th century is that quantum mechanics appears to force back upon us the requirement that some kind of action at a distance is present in nature. Quantum mechanics includes the possibility of some kind of action between spatially separated objects. And at first, some people were very discomforted by that. People like Einstein, who complained that it was spooky in a famous quote. And by spooky, he means magical. I mean, precisely the same kind of discomfort that you had with my initial levitation explanation, uh, Mark, is what Einstein found problematic with quantum mechanics. And uh, he and some other people resisted until they eventually left the scene. And so we have a state of things now that's very similar to uh, the state of things following Newton, where you have a seemingly magical concept having become an acceptable part of physics. And the question there is whether the term magical is inappropriate, and this is just something that the world is telling us is a feature of itself, or whether we're just sitting around waiting for the next Einstein to come along and to give us a better version of quantum mechanics that doesn't have that problem. That's fascinating. So it's interesting to me that this resistance to the idea of action at a distance seems to be pretty stubborn, even if it gets quelled to a certain extent by the sheer power of some theory and what we can do with it. It pops back up later. We keep on being worried about it. Something that you said earlier that I guess might explain that I'd like to go back to, which is this idea that you might worry that if we allow action at a distance, then we introduce real problems into the idea of giving explanations of things at all. It looks like now, if we can have action at a distance, well, who's to say that all of the phenomena that we see around us right now aren't being caused by something at some great distance where we're not aware of exactly what the connection is? It begins to look like the very explanations we give are somewhat arbitrary and provisional. So is that the right way to think about it, that that's the fundamental worry that keeps on cropping up in relation to action at a distance? In one guise or another, yes. Although I would actually, I would push that even further to say that uh, your characterization of the discomfort is actually grounded on something, uh, on a principle that's even more fundamental. And that goes right back to the problem that the pre-Socratics identified and were trying to solve. And, and by them, I'm thinking of Parmenides in this case very specifically. Okay, so what, what am I alerting to very, very vaguely here? Let, let, me, uh, let me keep the suspense going for a minute or two. The way that you just characterized the, the discomfort is uh, almost precisely what Einstein said. And the way that Einstein phrased this was as a kind of methodological complaint. He, said, he thought that science was impossible if you don't assume that objects in different parts of space, or space-time in, in his way of talking, but we can just talk about space for our purposes, that objects in different parts of space are independent of one another, which is another way of saying that they can't affect each other instantaneously. There's no action at a distance between the two. He thought that science was impossible, and you can think about that as in terms of methodology, that whatever methodology we have for science, it can't include that. But, but I think things go a little bit deeper, and they have to do with the nature of explanation itself. 
So what it means, to, it's really not just about science, it's about any kind of explanation at all. And if you ask yourself what, what explanations consist of, they at least consist of this, that to explain something means to give reasons for why it happened and to give sufficient reasons. And so in philosophy, we have a nice principle that was it's credited to uh, Leibniz in the 17th century called the principle of sufficient reason. And the principle of sufficient reason, you can formulate it in lots of different ways. The way that I like to formulate it is for everything that happens, there is a reason for why it happened and for the way in which it happened. It's actually more than just sufficient reason. It's this, the necessary and sufficient reason. So it really should be called the principle of necessary and sufficient reason. Because if you were able to give a bunch of reasons why something happened, in order to really satisfy this principle, you have to say why that thing happened and not something else. And that's to say why it was necessary. Okay, so why does the principle of sufficient reason, uh, how does this relate to the complaint that you just articulated? If it's the case that something that happens where I'm sitting were able to affect something that was happening where you were sitting instantaneously, there doesn't seem to be anything to explain why the thing happened where you're sitting and not somewhere else. This is the thinking, anyway, that if action at a distance is possible, then there doesn't seem to be any resources at the place where something happens to determine where the next thing happens. Whereas if you rule out action at a distance, the next thing that happens has to be right next to the thing that happened. And, okay, you might ask, well, what direction? Well, you can actually determine the direction just by specifying the direction that things are happening locally. So this can all be determined sort of locally. That, this is the thinking, anyway. This thinking goes straight back to Parmenides, who was a pre-Socratic, uh, of whose writings we have very little, but uh, he gets talked about a lot by the other philosophers. And the thing that he said, he started out with the premise that something cannot come from nothing. It seems like a very intuitive, very straightforward thing to say. Something cannot come from nothing. For everything that exists, it had to come from something that also existed. You can consider that more fully, and not just in terms of things that exist, but in the properties that they have. So a very simple example, you know, an apple has to come from an apple tree, for example. The, uh, but even the color of the apple is determined by something inside the apple tree, you know, namely the seeds. The explanation we would give now is that the seeds contain some DNA, which creates some chemicals, which uh, have certain reflective properties, and blah, blah, blah. So that's why the, the thing is red. Um, well, the redness is a kind of property of the apple, and the idea is that that redness had to come from somewhere. Um, it didn't just come out of nothing. Okay, so if you take that understanding of Parmenides' principle that something cannot come from nothing, you end up with the problem that change appears to be impossible because any property has to have come from a pre-existing property. And if it changes in any way, then that change had to already exist in the thing that was changing. And change is the difference in properties over time. So if something cannot come from nothing and we interpret it in this very strict way, then change is impossible. Parmenides' conclusion was that the appearance of change is just an illusion, actually, and the reality is unchanging, and we're mistaken in thinking that the world is actually changing around us. All the work that the ancients do on the physical world after that is an attempt to solve the problem that Parmenides poses. How is change possible? Okay, so the, what's the connection between Parmenides' problem and what we were just talking about? Well, Parmenides' principle that something cannot come from nothing, to my ears, just sounds like the principle of sufficient reason. That for everything that happens, there is a reason for why it happens. That reason exists in the universe. If something can come from nothing, then it clearly violates that principle. And if something happens without reason, 
then that's a change that occurs without something determining it. So, in essence, the product of the change is coming out of nothing. So, one philosophical question that one might raise about all of this is the question of exactly what's going on when we do science and when we do philosophy. One pretty intuitive view is to say that the world's out there, it is a certain way, and it kind of tells us how it is, or at least we go about discovering how it is, and we just build up our knowledge of it, we get better and better, we know more and more about it. But it seems like one of the themes that's come up for us is this idea that before we begin to work out how the world is, we need to have certain assumptions about how it must be, certain principles from which we start. So it's not possible for something to come from nothing. There must always be a sufficient reason. Maybe you could say something briefly about that. Should the kind of stories that we've been talking about lead us to think that this picture of the world simply informing us about itself through the practice of science is naive? Is it really always going to be the case that we bring certain assumptions with us and those assumptions themselves can't be justified? That is uh, precisely a question that's brought up by looking at the history of action at a distance over the course of science. I think both sides of the divide that you just mentioned, people who would want to claim that um, we have no choice but to bring presuppositions to our attempts to explain the, the natural world, and others who might want to say that the only way to do good science or to give a good explanation is to remove all presuppositions and let the world tell you what is true and false. There are good arguments in the history of science for both sides. Newton violated this tenet of the mechanistic philosophy, and it led to great progress in science. Faraday and Maxwell rejected Newton's violation, and it led to great progress in the history of science. Einstein endorsed their rejection and furthermore reconfigured Newton's physics, and that led to great progress in science. And then other people rejected Einstein's rejection of Newton, and that led to quantum mechanics, and Einstein resisted it almost bitterly. And so there is no obvious lesson to draw from the history of science. So this really is a task for a philosophical analysis of explanation and of what, how one goes about giving explanations. It seems to me that it is not possible to have no presuppositions whatsoever. No matter what one does when one tries to explain something, one has to adopt a conceptual framework of some kind. And that framework will have a foundation, some set of principles that define that foundation. One might be able to adjust the framework and adopt a new one. So, for example, one might be able to believe in action at a distance and believe in uh, Newtonian physics and see Einstein's physics and that it exists in a different conceptual framework and adjust the principles that they have to assume in order to come up with good explanations. However, that said, it seems to me that something like the principle of sufficient reason is extremely difficult to do without. I don't know how to give an explanation that doesn't involve the giving of reasons and the giving of reasons that make the phenomenon that I'm trying to explain necessary. Now, if that's the case, I should say, I mean, that, that is a somewhat strong statement. So if it's the case, one, that the principle of sufficient reason is a necessary presupposition for the possibility of explanation, and it is the case that concepts like action at a distance and non-locality and indeterminism, which we haven't talked about much, but that's uh, a part of quantum mechanics for most people, 
Um, if those things really do uh, violate the principle of sufficient reason, then you have to ask you know, what it is that quantum mechanics is actually doing. Are interpretations of quantum mechanics that involve indeterminism and non-locality really coherent? And that's the same sort of complaint that people like Leibniz made against uh, Newtonian gravity. So I'm expressing a preference. I think the principle of sufficient reason is one of these principles that we can't do without. At least I don't understand how one could do without them. And so that's a preference that I would express. But, but I would also look to the history, at least in this regard, that when Faraday and Maxwell were able to give an account of the electromagnetic phenomena that didn't involve action at a distance, and when Einstein was able to give a description of gravity that didn't involve action at a distance, almost uniformly were those considered good things. There weren't people lamenting the loss of action at a distance, whereas there were people, um, and there continue to be people, who lament the loss of whatever mechanistic principle precludes action at a distance. So I think it's hard to argue with the claim that if somebody were able to come up with a theory of quantum mechanics that didn't include the troublesome concepts that seem like action at a distance, that physicists wouldn't celebrate that. Now, I, I say that, but it, it's worth recognizing that there are good reasons to worry that such an account of quantum mechanics is impossible. And results like Bell's theorem and, and related results uh, are attempts to try to express those limits. They try to express what it is about classical mechanics, the physics that precedes quantum mechanics, that we have to give up no matter what. Whether we come up with a better theory than quantum mechanics or not, these theorems, like Bell's theorem and the, the Cauchy and Specker theorem, try to express what it is that we'll have to give up in order to, in order to explain the results of experiments that have motivated the introduction of quantum mechanics. So right back at the beginning of our conversation, you had me worried about a certain kind of explanation of what was going on with this matchstick. So you had the playing card in your hand, you had the matchstick apparently levitating over it, and the purported explanation that you have this power of your mind to lift the matchstick was bothering me somewhat. And you might say that one of the things that was bothering me was the idea that, well, it seems magical. So maybe we could bring the conversation back full circle to that. Where does that kind of worry fit in? Is that the, was my discomfort there connected to the kind of principles that you've been talking about holding on to here? Yeah, it, it is precisely. So when we talked about the match and levitator particles, um, we, we sort of compared these two styles of explanation. One is that I simply have the power to levitate, and that's just a kind of brute fact, and that levitation is just a feature of the world, and it's a power that some humans have. And we compared that to uh, the alternative in which the power of levitation is actually articulated in terms of these particles that move continuously in space and time. And, and, and you thought that that was a more satisfying explanation. Uh, you still had some discomfort, but probably more because the whole idea of levitation was, was unfamiliar, and the idea of shooting particles out of my brain is unfamiliar. Uh, and then you were probably also jealous because you wanted to figure out how I was doing it. So the distinction between the two possible avenues of the future of levitation explanation are exactly what we're presented with when we're talking about the future of explanation in science. And it's what people were presented with at Newton's time as well. It's just that, that story has an ending, and we don't have the ending of the story for quantum mechanics yet. And so the, the two possibilities with quantum mechanics are, first of all, it's worth saying that quantum mechanics appears to have the powers of levitation as brute facts. 
it appears, according to our, our the most straightforward interpretation of quantum mechanics, it is the case that an event that happens in one place can instantaneously affect an event that happens in another place. Um, it appears that two events can be so linked that they really don't have distinct identities themselves. You can talk about events, or you can talk about particles. Um, you can talk about two electrons that have interacted with one another and then moved apart. There are things that we can measure about the electrons that make them seem as if they're not two distinct things, but one thing. Okay, now that seems magical and mysterious. And they can be entirely separate sides of the universe, and they somehow still can seem to interact with one another instantaneously. Although, interestingly, in ways that we can't control. So quantum mechanics has set things up so that we can't control that very distant interaction, though we can appear to measure it. We can appear to see that it has to exist. Okay, so one possibility is just that that is a brute fact of the universe, that that it just electrons and particles are just that way, that they can uh, be entangled with one another over great distances, just like it could just be that people have the power of levitation. But it could also be that there is some other kind of explanation that fits with our ideas that I would trace back to the principle of sufficient reason about how action can be transmitted in a reasonable way, a way that's amenable to description in terms of reasons. And uh, the end of that story has not been written yet. If the history of science is an example, we probably won't be around for the end of it, though I hope that's not the case. Brandon Fogel, thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.